between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease. Um, but to start off with, this, this work modeling Down syndrome started over 20 years ago. It started in the 1990s um, because I and Victor Tabulovic, who is at NIMR, who's actually an immunologist, were old flatmates together when we were postdocs at MIT back in the 1980s. And this entire project comes out of thinking about aneuploidy, the, the problem of having an extra or a, an odd number of chromosomes and how to model it in mice. And at the time I was working on Turner syndrome, which is another human aneuploidy syndrome, and Victor had produced uh, manipulating mouse embryonic stem cells, made one of the first knockout mice in the world at that time, it's an awfully long time ago. And I always say when I start this talk, this, this whole project really came out of um, meeting at the Prince Albert pub in Notting Hill Gate on a regular basis and thinking, this would be so easy, we could do something amazing with this. Um, it took us 13 years from the start of the project to actually publishing the first paper, which just shows you what rubbish you talk after several pints of beer. So, uh, without further ado, yes, so this is a long-term collaboration between Victor and me. Everything I'm going to present is really 50-50 between Victor and me, but the latter half to talk about Alzheimer's disease is really work that Francis Weissman has um, done. So let's start with a bit of history. John Langdon Down, why is it called Down Syndrome? Well, it's called Down Syndrome after this chap. He was a rather unusual person. He was the son of um, a poor Cornish shopkeeper 
and he ran away to the Big Smoke, he ran away to London to train as a doctor, which he did at the Royal London Hospital. So he was an English physician, Victorian physician, and he was rather unusual. He had very liberal views at his time. Um, the early suffragettes actually met in his rooms. Um, and he also, he, he ended up down in Epsom, um, taking over an institution there for people with learning difficulties. And he didn't lump everybody together. He was really interested in the individuals he looked after. And he began to notice that there were a set of people who looked the same and they had similar characteristics. In 1862, he published a monograph of five of these individuals. And looking back at that monograph, we now say, oh yes, they had Down syndrome or something very similar about them. And that was kind of it for about 100 years. And then in the very, very early days of looking at human chromosomes in the 1940s and 50s, it was terribly, terribly difficult to look at human chromosomes. And in fact, in the, in the 1940s, it was published and everybody thought that humans had 48 chromosomes. In the 1950s, this turned out to be not the case. And in 1959, uh, this woman, Marthe Gautier, had she's uh, another physician working in Paris. She'd come back on a fellowship to Paris. She'd been working at Harvard. And she'd been being taught how to culture cardiomyocytes and look at chromosomes, a very tough thing to do in those days. And she was really the first person to look down a microscope and see this. Uh, she didn't actually see this at all. She saw a bunch of chromosomes. This is chromosomes laid out. But what she saw was that people with Down syndrome had three copies of chromosome 21. That's the basis of Down syndrome. So in 1959, with Jerome Lejeune and Raymond Turpin, she published this finding. She's actually still alive. She's in her late 80s and now is being awarded all sorts of cool awards from genetic societies around the world for this discovery made over 50 years ago. So if we think about Down syndrome phenotypes, you first of all, everybody recognizes people with Down syndrome. Some of you will have people with Downs in your families or, or friends who have Down syndrome. It's very common. Ballpark, it's about 1 in 750 births worldwide, and that's regardless of what you eat, where you come from, what your ethnic background is, any other features that you can think of as far as we know. Um, the major risk factor for it is increasing maternal age. I'll come back to that later. But people with Down syndrome have a set of invariant features. When you think about Downs, or I think about Downs, what do we think about? We think about cognitive difficulties, cognitive impairment. Um, if, uh, if you're used to looking at babies, apparently babies have a, they're sort of floppy, they have lack of muscle tone, they have hypertonia. And then pretty well in everybody who has Downs, by the time they're about 30 or 40, they have the typical plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease in their brains, not the dementia, I'll come back to that again. But actually the point about Downs, and one of the things that makes it really interesting, is it's incredibly variable. Um, so from low IQ through to IQs for 100, but with specific defects in, say, learning and memory. Heart defects, but heart defects, very specific sorts of heart defects in about 40% of people, 60% of people with Downs don't get heart defects. Autoimmune disorders, some people get leukemia, some people don't, some people get dementia, some people don't. It's terribly, terribly variable. So there are many systems affected, uh, pretty well every sort of human biology system you might be interested in, but not in everyone, except for these invariant features which include um, the cognitive impairment. So from my point of view as a geneticist, you might think, well, you know, what causes Down syndrome? And it's a big problem to try to link specific genes on chromosome 21 with phenotype because we don't have mutant genes. We can't do the usual linkage analysis or genome sequencing that would give us clues about which genes give rise to which phenotypes because it's a dosage disorder. 
It simply is a disorder that arises because you have some genes on chromosome 21 that are dosage sensitive. So when they're present in three copies, they give rise to these phenotypes. The phenotypes themselves are highly variable. So we'd like to know which genes are responsible for which features for two reasons. Because firstly, that might give us the opportunity for therapies in people. And secondly, of course, whatever is going on in Down syndrome tells us about networks and pathways and biochemistry that's important for similar disorders in the euploid population and the rest of us who don't have trisomy 21. So if we think about Down syndrome in human genetic studies, this has pretty well been the picture for the last 50 years or so. It will change with the advent of um, genome-wide association studies and with large collections <coughs> of DNAs from clinically well-defined people with Down syndrome, but this is the picture at the moment. There are very rare partial trisomy 21 cases, probably about 100 around the world that are being described. And people have tried to do correlations between Down syndrome features, which remember are very variable anyway, and the parts of chromosome 21 that are present as partial trisomies, just simply trying to link what do we see in these individuals with what regions tend to be partially trisomic. And it's a bit of an art because you've got multiple clinicians giving different diagnoses around the world. It's a very variable syndrome anyway. But what people came up with many years ago, and um, I'm going to go to this screen up here, is this region here, about five megabases down towards um, the end of the long arm of chromosome 21. And the geneticists in the audience will already have spotted that this is chromosome 21, staring out at you, the short arm, the centromere, and the long arm, my brilliantly accurate depiction. So this. Five megabases down here, it's called the so-called Down syndrome critical region because there are genes in that region that from the human data give rise to the invariant features such as the cognitive difficulties. But I think, and a lot of other people think, that's kind of rubbish because actually clearly there are genes up and down the chromosome that affects Down syndrome, including the cognitive abnormalities. But that's where we are. People still refer to this five megabases of Down syndrome critical region. And although you might be thinking, well, isn't that useful? Because we know what all the genes on chromosome 21. Actually, it isn't useful because you've still got a lot of candidate genes in there. And still, somehow, even if we lighten the candidate gene, we've got to prove biologically that that gene does something when it's present in just three copies. So being a mouse person and uh, chatting with Victor over the years, we thought about, well, you know, how can we model Down syndrome in a mouse? And I'm going to take you through a little bit of mouse genetics, which will be thrilling to everyone, I know. So if we think about human chromosome 21, there we are again. Short arm, centromere, long arm, about 47 megabases of DNA. These are really where all the genes are. Um, the short arm I'm going to conveniently ignore because it's full of repeats. Actually, it does have genes on it, but I'm going to ignore it for the time being. So chromosome 21 has homology to mouse chromosomes. Um, 16, 28 megabases of DNA there, 17 and 10, because as you know, during the 80 million years of evolution that have separated humans from mice, we retain the same gene content but split over different chromosomes. So if we're starting to think about how do we model this dosage-sensitive disorder in mice, the first problem is it's not just a single mouse chromosome we're dealing with, we're actually dealing with portions of three different mouse chromosomes. But a few years ago, a new technique, um, partly pioneered by Alan Bradley over at the Sanger Institute, came into being, and this has really saved us. It's a great technique, it's chromosome engineering. It uses Crelox technology, for those of you familiar with the Crelox system and embryonic stem cell engineering. I'm not going to go into it in detail. But it's a way of engineering mouse chromosomes to make these massive, megabase-long partial trisomies. We can also do partial monosomies as well. 
So now we can start thinking of breaking up the mouse genome to create partial trisomies in a way that's exactly analogous to the partial trisomies I've just been talking about in humans. So there are very few labs in the world that do this, because actually why would you want to do it? So Eugene Yu, working in the States, has, has produced a fantastic set of mouse models <coughs> that contain the whole of this region of mouse chromosome 16. That's a partial trisomy of 28 megabases or so. It's enormous. All of 17, all of 16. Um, Jan Hero, who runs the Strasbourg Mouse Clinic, which is an enormous institute in, in Strasbourg, that's why it's called the Strasbourg Mouse Clinic, has been making partial trisomies as well. Victor and I do it in London. Roger Reeves, who Nick, in fact, used to work for in Baltimore. We're all making these partial trisomy strains. And so really, just to indicate here, that's a mouse strain, that's a mouse strain, that's a new mouse strain, that's a new mouse strain. And if you look at what we've all done together, there are probably about 28 new partial trisomy mouse strains that span all of that region equivalent to human chromosome 21. So what does that give us? From a genetics point of view, it gives us a mapping panel. How does this work? Well, here's um, a, my lovely reductionist genetics approach, which is not really dependent on biology. Let's say that we have five mouse strains. There we are, five new mouse strains. They're all partially trisomic. This is the region of partial trisomy. And the way that I'm going to map my dosage-sensitive genes is I'm going to find a phenotype that I'm interested in. And here is the phenotype of do mice look to their right or do they look to their left? So let's look at this phenotype. If I score my five mouse strains, these guys here are the mutants. They're looking over to their left-hand side. And so simply, if we look at the gene content there, we can say the region of overlap between <coughs> those two strains, the region of overlap of partial trisomy, where candidate genes have to lie, is there. It's that simple. There's nothing complicated about this at all. And that's the whole principle that we've engineered all these mouse strains. We've spent almost a decade, all three of those, four of those labs, working on producing these partial mouse strains, simply to do that kind of reductionist style of genetic mapping. Is it that simple in real life? No, of course it isn't. But I'm going to show you an example of where it actually has worked. So that's the mouse strains. But a few years ago, in fact, in 1991, when Victor and I were hanging out in the pub in Notting Hill Gate, we decided, well, how difficult could it be to put a human chromosome into a mice? It can't be that difficult, right? No, of course it can't. So we sold this idea to the Wellcome Trust, and um, they gave us three years' worth of funding, and we failed completely. So they gave us another two years' worth of funding, at which we failed completely again. And then they gave us a year's worth of funding, and we failed utterly for that point. By this time, we were... Um, making a postdoc very distressed indeed. And then we started embezzling MRC money from Victor's Grant and IMR for immunology. And eventually, after 13 years and two postdocs, those postdocs went on to happy careers elsewhere, I'm like, so, we, um, we actually published a paper, which was amazing. And I'm going to tell you um, about what we published. So we initially thought, if we put human chromosome 21 into a mouse, it will give us the full set of chromosome 21 genes because, of course, there are slight differences between the human and the mouse genome. There are genes on human chromosome 21, about five of them that don't seem to be in the mouse genome. And likewise, with those regions of mouse 16, 17, and 10, there are occasional genes on there that don't seem to be in the human genome. So we'd have the full set of human chromosome 21 genes, which should give us the correct levels of expression, the times of expression, places of expression. Theoretically, it's not always going to be true. And of course, those genes, those human genes, would be subject to full genetic interplay with the rest of the genome. So that's the idea. That's what we said we'd do. 
This is published, I'm not going to go into the full ghastly, horrendous, torturous and so it, but I will just point out that the way we put human chromosome 21 um, into the mouse was to take a normal human cell line, was to drop a dominant selectable marker by homologous recombination for any of you who actually are interested in mouse genetics, into a perfectly normal human chromosome 21. We then used a very old um, cell cultural technique called microcell-mediated chromosome transfer to spin the cells, centrifuge them, get them stuck into mitosis, the chromosomes bunch up, they're, they're very dense, spin them out of the cells, they're covered in cell membrane and nuclear membrane. For reasons that seemed a good idea at the time, but that had disastrous consequences, we then irradiated with 20,000 rads of gamma radiation. Seems a little unusual if you want to maintain your genetic integrity, but it was a good idea at the time. And we then took those microcells, fused them to mouse embryonic stem cells to make what we called transchromosomic embryonic stem cells. And they're normal bulk standard mouse embryonic stem cells that one would then use for um, injecting into blastocysts <coughs> to make chimeric mice to breed, to produce our transchromosomic mice. Normally S cells, except they've got human chromosome 21 in. So that scheme that we tell welcome, we do several times over three years, took 13 years, and we got one strain of mice out. And this is the mice. Um, so there's a wild type litomate, and there's what we call a transchromosomic mouse litomate. And as you can see, they look utterly identical. But if you're an animal mouse technician, and you look at these mice every day, um, allegedly you can tell the difference between the two. I can't. I don't see mice that often. And they kind of, they are pretty similar, except that if you look at the DNA of this mice, it, they have human chromosome 21 <coughs> present. Now there are, as we later discovered over the years, problems with this mouse. Human chromosome 21 is not retained in all cells, and that is a difficulty if you want to do single cell recording, etc. I will come back to that. <coughs> um, and as we discovered, we completely um, buggered the chromosome, basically, through irradiating it, and that led to another problem which I will come on to. So what have we done with this mouse? Well, I'm not a geneticist, and in 2001, I made the decision to move from Imperial to the Institute of Neurology, because if you are a geneticist, what you need is people who understand the phenotype. And that has paid off, um, it's been a wonderful environment to work in, and we, but we've collaborated around the world, around the UK, to get these mice out, to really start to understand what's going on in Down syndrome, because as I said, it's a hugely variable syndrome across many, many features. So I'm just um, flinging up a few names there of various people who've been involved, and I want to particularly point out uh, David Bannerman, who's also there, right at the back, looking modest, um, David has done an absolutely monumental amount of work with his mice and has really been the mainstay of the behavioural phenotyping um, and we are massively in his debt, massively in his debt. So thank you David, over there. So we're looking at lots of things and I will I'll talk about the neurodegeneration in a minute with Francis Wiseman uh, who works over at the Institute of Neurology. But just to deviate for a little bit, um, so remember I said that 40% of people with Downs get heart defects, it's not just any sort of defect, it's a very specific sort of atrioventricular septal defect. And I'm not a heart person, um, so I barely know what I'm looking at, but these are cross-sections of heart, and uh, of the mouse heart. And this is a, this is a wild-type mouse heart, an embryonic mouse heart, with the um, septum forming normally. But if you look at these white arrows, <coughs> there are holes in the heart, and that is apparently exactly like what you see in human Down syndrome, exactly like and this model, this humanised mouse model with human chromosome 21 in it, turns out to be the best model of heart defects that one finds in Down syndrome. So what have we done with that? Well, just to prove the point about mapping, this has actually allowed us to map a region of chromosome 21 that we believe contains dosage-sensitive genes responsible for those very specific types of heart defects. And what we've done 
And this is um, Evelana Ilolo, who works with Victor up at um, NIMR, now the Crick. So there's the short arm again, there's the centromere, there's the long arm. That corresponds to mouse 16, 17, and 10. We've taken our mouse chromosome-engineered mice, the partial trisomy, and what Ever's done is simply look for heart defects in embryos from those different strains. So this time we're looking horizontally. There are all the different partial trisomies. Um, that's just a few of the ones that we have. We're, I think I probably said this, but we have about 24 different strains now spanning the chromosome. And she's just done that very simple correlation. Where do I see heart defects, the specific heart, type of heart defects? Which strains are they in? What's the smallest region over? And when she does that, um, I, I'm not going to go into any great degree of detail about this, but the red there indicates the heart defects in a proportion of the animals. E even with our engineered mouse strains that are all genetically identical, even there we find variability with the phenotypes. Um, but in these animals, they show specific types of heart defects. And if we look at that region, that's a region that just has 36 genes in. It's all sequenced. We know which genes are there. And so we have some candidates from that region that might be responsible for those sorts of heart defects. And for us, that's a really, really exciting state to be in. And it's taken a very long time to get to that point. Um, because as geneticists, first of all, we have to engineer the mice. And to make the strains that we've needed, it's taken two postdocs seven years. And then we're in a position for those postdocs to actually go and start to look at phenotypes. So doing this kind of mouse genetics is a labor of love for the grad students and the postdocs. It's a nightmare for the lab heads, because for us, it's constantly trying to raise money to do these long-term projects, which, as you can imagine, is not easy. So back to the title of the talk, um, Alzheimer's disease and Down syndrome. And this is, as I have to say, this is really all work from Frances Wiseman who would be, I think, presenting this talk today fairly, except she's just gone off on maternity leave, so it's fallen on to me to do it. Um, so at some point, because I'm not an Alzheimer's expert, I might just turn to David and um, ask him for help with all of this, or I might not, it's okay. But if we think about Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease, well, <coughs> so remember I said that for pretty well everybody, pretty well universally, everyone who has Down syndrome has the typical plaques and tangles, the histopathology of Alzheimer's in their brain by the time they're 40. And why might this be? Well, it's because APP, the amyloid plaque precursor gene, lies on chromosome 21. This is kind of a simple explanation. That's fine. So wh where does that get us? Well, we know, and there are many publications in the literature about this, there are rare families around, very rare families, who just have that little portion of APP triplicated. So just that, of, of chromosome 21 that contains APP triplicated. So just that little portion of, 80, of um, chromosome 21, nothing else. And in those rare families, Alzheimer's disease is aggressive, it's early onset, and that genetic mutation is fully penetrant as far as anybody can make out. So therefore you think, well, okay, it makes sense. You know, if you've got Down syndrome, you've got three copies of APP, therefore of course you're going to get early onset Alzheimer's disease. But the strange thing is, that when you look at um, the graphs, it's not quite like that. So, um, is there a bit more going on? Well, if, if we look at what's happening with um, Down syndrome, and remember, the, everyone has the plaques and tangles in their brain. We have people we know about who have Down syndrome and don't appear to be partial down, um, mosaic Downs, but appear to be fully Downs, as much as one can tell, in their 70s and 80s, without dementia. They might have plaques and tangles in the brain, they don't have dementia. So is there something protective going on on chromosome 21? And also, when you talk to people who work on Alzheimer's disease, I don't know if there may be Alzheimer's clinicians in the audience, but you sort of hear anecdotally, well, 
it's, it, the, the literature is somewhat anecdotal, but maybe people with Downs, they don't start the appearance of dementia with a typical memory loss. They start with more frontotemporal behavioral changes that leads on to the dementia. It just seems a little bit different, but again, that's anecdotal. There, aren't, there, there isn't so much um, clear data about this. So we were thinking about this in, um, in the mouse, wondering, is there a bit more going on? And we came back to our humanized mouse again, the TC1 mouse, when we started this project. And we've been a bit worried about the chromosome 21 in the mouse, to be honest, because, as I say, we gamma irradiated it before we put it into a mouse. And we knew when we published um, our, our science paper in 2005, we knew there were a couple of big deletions in the chromosome that hadn't been in the chromosome before we'd irradiated it. So we clearly done something. So we thought we'd better get it sequenced. And we went to, uh, to the Sanger Institute. This turned out to be actually quite a difficult bioinformatics project because uh, no one really sequences mouse chromosomes on, hu on a human background. And we've got a lot of orthology there, sequence orthology. So it took a while to get the data through. But when we did, we found out that we actually only have about 75% of the genes there that are functional. And also, by sheer act of God, the gene that we had knocked out was APP. So that was a bad day in my career. And um, there's this great American phrase about when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And this is, um, this is how to resurrect a disastrous situation, um, particularly because we just had a whole lot of money, again, from the lovely, lovely Welcome Trust to look at Alzheimer's and mice. So this was not good. So we started to think, OK, if you do mouse genetics, the benefit of mouse genetics is that you can take your mouse and you can cross it to another mouse. And that's going to tell you something about pathways. It's going to tell you something about what interacts with something else. So what the next part of the talk, which is really Francis's work, I'm not claiming that we're looking at mouse models of Down syndrome or Alzheimer's disease. We're looking at a synthetic system, but it is starting to tell us something really interesting. So we thought about, well, we've got our Down's mice there without APP, so that's not great if we want to investigate Alzheimer's disease. Let's bring in an Alzheimer's mouse. And there aren't... Um, really that many good mouse models of Alzheimer's because you've got different things going on. You've got amyloid plaque deposition, you've got tangle formation. And, um, well, in fact, truthfully, there was a particularly standard amyloid plaque deposition model that we wanted to get hold of um, that we took six months trying to get out of a large mouse company who shall be nameless and failing to get the MTA sorted out, uh, which wiped out six months of the ground. And eventually we settled on this mouse model here which is um, an amyloid, the J20 mouse model um, that some of you will have heard of. It's not the most widely used mouse model of uh, APP pathology, but we're very happy with it. So this is a transgenic mouse. So like all transgenic mice, it overexpresses um, the gene of interest, which in our case is APP. And it overexpresses human APP driven by a PDGF promoter. So it's not like Alzheimer's, it's synthetic form of Alzheimer's, it's overexpressing a human form of APP, and it's a human form of APP that has a couple of Alzheimer's mutations in it, for those who are familiar with Alzheimer's, uh, the Swedish mutation and the Indiana mutation, and they're there because they increase deposition of A-beta-42, which is the peptide most associated with Alzheimer's disease. It is a synthetic system, but it's, it's widely used. It came out from um, Leonard Bookie's lab in UCSF, and it is mercifully, thank you, Leonard Bookie, easy to get hold of in terms of NTAs. So then we thought about our mouse cross. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to take our trisomic humanized mouse that's got human chromosome 21, oh, okay, without APP. So that mouse has two copies of mouse endogenous APP in it. 
It's a bog standard mouse, except that it's got all the other genes on chromosome 21, present in three copies, most of the other genes on 21. And we're going to cross it to our J20 model. So as I've said, that's just a transgenic mouse overexpressing APP. It's a model of amyloid plaque deposition. And when we do that, by very, very simple mouse genetics, and I like simple mouse genetics, we get four types of progeny out. So we get wild-type animals that don't inherit a mutation from either mum or dad. We get the trisomic animals that just inherit that chromosome 21 from that parent there. They're not going to have amyloid plaque deposition because they've just got two endogenous mouse copies of APP. We get the transgenic animals that just inherit that transgene there. They will have amyloid plaque deposition because um, you know, that's why we got them in the first place. That's why they exist. And then we're going to have these mice here that have the double whammy. They've got the transgene and they've got all those other genes on chromosome 21, but, but not ATP from 21. And we're going to ask a very simple question. And that's the question, if we compare these two types of mice, do we see any modification, any differences between those two phenotypes? Because if we do, the only difference between those two mice is the presence or absence of chromosome 21 genes in two copies or three copies. So if we see a difference, it has to be because there are dosage sensitivities on the 21 that we've put in. It is that simple. There's nothing complicated about this. Um, so what's happened? And I have to say that when we did this experiment, it was, it was a kind of, oh, bloody hell, we've just knocked out APP. We're going to do this cross. It's all going to be negative. We'll write up the false if we're lucky. And uh, it's all going to be terribly embarrassing. So we did the cross and went and pleaded uh, with David to have Francis in the lab do a whole load of behavioural experiments, which he kindly did. And so David and uh, his uh, postdoc at the time, Chris Barker, did masses and masses of experiments on the mice, looking at behaviour. If you ask me any questions at all about this, I will refer them to David, who knows a lot more about it. But just to point out a couple of things that came out. If we compare, um, remember white um, is the wild type, blue is the trisomic, but actually you only need to be interested in these two um, colours, and I apologise for the vile colour scheme. All we're doing is looking at the transgenics in orange and the double mutants in green, that's all. So if we compare the double mutants to the transgenics, the double mutants fail to habituate on an open field test. So there's something going on with anxiety or memory or whatever else you want to ask David about afterwards. And whatever it is, when you do the stats, it's not, um, it, it's an interaction, it's not simply um, an additive effect between the trisomic and the transgenics. It is an interaction as shown by the stats. So there's something happening that's different if you add in chromosome 21. Here's another behavioural test, again with David Bannerman and Chris Barkers. This is um, a Y maze. Mice, if you put them into one side of the maze, they're foraging animals. If they know they've been to the left arm, then they'll nip down the right arm, because they remember having to be in the left arm, and they know there's nothing interesting there. They want to go another nosy down the right arm. So in, in ways I'm not going to describe, again, I can hand over to David. Um, if you just, just look here at the double um, mutants compared to just single transgenics in orange, at the short-term memory deficits in those mice, they've got to remember which arm they've been down, then there is, again, an interactive effect. It's not additive, it's an interactive effect from genes on chromosome 21. Um, here, for me, is, is a very simple demonstration, which, I, and this is actually the first piece of data we saw, which I think is astonishing, astonished me, anyway. Let's look at the histopathology, then. If we think there's something going on behaviourally, let's look in the hippocampus, seat of learning and memory, as you all know better than I do. So here's a wild-type litter mate. That's the cross-section of the hippocampus. 
That's um, apparently a blood vessel, I'm told by histopathologists. That's a 16-month-old mouse brain. There is no amyloid plaque deposition. That's what you'd expect. Well, don't mind, don't get Alzheimer's disease. So let's quantify the plaques at six months and at 16 months. Um, here's a trisomic litamate. Remember, that's a mouse that has two copies of APP, and the histopathologists tell me that the blobs you can see, again, are either crap or blood vessels, unreliably told. So we're not seeing deposition of APP in the trisomic mouse brain. Again, that's exactly what we'd expect. That mouse only has two copies of mouse APP. It's not going to deposit APP. Here's a transgenic mouse, and it's doing exactly what we'd expect from the literature. After 16 months, you can clearly see amyloid plaques in that mouse. That's what it was engineered to do. But for me, the absolutely remarkable thing is if you look in a double trisomic cell that has a transgene array that, that gives you amyloid plaque deposition, and they have 75% of genes on chromosome 21. There is a massive uplift, and it's statistically significant, in the number of plaques that are being deposited. And that was an amazing result, as amazing as a behavior. We never, ever, I mean, expected to see that at all. So clearly, there is something going on. So if we just ask that very simple question, do triplicated genes on chromosome 21, those genes that we've put in to the double mutant mice, do they modulate APP pathology? Yes, they do. And so we have behavioral, we have histopathological, we now have some electrophysiological um, data to say that's clearly the case. There are genes on chromosome 21 that are present in three copies that affect amyloid uh, deposition in some way, and that has to be relevant to what's going on in human Down syndrome. So the question is how? You know, what, what is actually going on? How do we understand what's happening? Well, um, there are three things that could be going on. We could simply be altering production of um, APP. We could be altering the processing of ATP, or we could be altering in some way the clearance of ATP to give that extra amyloid plaque deposition. And um, I'm not going to give you a nice final story, but I'm just going to take you through Frances's data of how she's tackled this problem and what we found out so far. So we've done about 5,000 billion different um, quantifications of ATP at the RNA and protein level in those two different types of mice with the transgene with and without human chromosome 21, and we cannot detect any differences at the RNA or protein <coughs> level for production of APP. So we don't think it's production. Um, if we think about APP processing, this is my personal nightmare slide because I'm not an Alzheimer's expert, but I'm just going to, in a very loose uh, fashion and hand wavy fashion, show you that there are two pathways of APP processing. One does not lead to amyloid deposition and involves an enzyme called alpha-secretase um, that breaks APP, nips off APP in half there. And then that is uh, the, the uh, intramembrane part of APP is then processed by gamma secretases that nibble away and produce these alpha C terminal fragments. That doesn't give you Alzheimer's disease. What gives you Alzheimer's disease is the amyloidogenic pathway, which is over here, where again, there's APP, uh, the transmembrane domains, and this is the intracellular part here. Beta secretase, the enzyme base one, comes along, cuts APP there to give you that fragment there. Gamma secretase come along and nibble away at that site, producing beta C terminal fragments, and also what they produce are A beta fragments there. And that is thought to be, in some way, that's obscure to me anyway, the pathological component of APP. So, what's going on with APP processing? We've got enzymes there. Are we doing anything with the enzymes? Um, so, one of the things that Francis first did, and this is working with Henrik Zetterberg at the Institute of Neurology with us is um, they did various mass spec profiles of the insoluble fragments, the fragments that are down in the plaques in the transgenic versus the transgenic with chromosome 21 mice, and we're not seeing any differences. 
So there's nothing that we can work out that's going on with the insoluble fraction. So it's, who knows what's going on with deposition? There's certainly more there. This is um, one of Francis's slides. There's a lot on there, but basically it's to say that if you look by two different antibodies to different regions of um, APP, uh, in both the cortex and the hippocampus, what we find is there is an upregulation of those C-terminal fragments. So there's some, there is something going on with processing. There, there is an increase in C-terminal fragments. Don't quite know what's happening there, but look at, look at the transgenics compared to the double uh, mutant mice. There's something pretty significant happening with APP processing. But we can't work out what it is because we know what the enzymes are. So if we look at beta secretase, if we look at two types of mice, um, we're not seeing any increase in beta secretase activity. So we're, we're not altering the nibbling that's going on with beta secretase enzyme. What about gamma secretase? Well, gamma secretase turns out to be massively difficult to look at because it's a complex of at least four different proteins. So this is work that we've done with Bart de Struper in Belgium, who's an expert in gamma secretase. And because this is rather difficult to do and for various different reasons, um, he chose to look at the wild type versus the trisomic mice. So there is a proviso with this. But he, in the trisomic mice, we have no evidence at all for an increase in gamma secretase activity or in gamma secretase amount. So that's incredibly disappointing because we think that's something going on with processing. But the two enzymes involved, we're not seeing any differences at all, not even a hint of difference, a sniff of difference, that would um, tell us what is happening, but, but there is something going on because when Francis then looks at the soluble fraction, we do find differences in the profile, but rather surprisingly, the difference we find is in this um, fragment, AB to 38, and that is surprising because that is actually thought to be protective for Alzheimer's disease. So just as an aside, and I'm not going to go into any data, we've, we've taken, this is really just as an aside because it's very, very primitive, We've taken a region, a different partial trisomy of mass, um, uh, equivalent to mass chromosome 17, we've crossed it to one of our J20 mice again, and we're actually seeing a protective effect. And so there's some, that might explain, that might be part of the reason why is it that not everybody who has Downs who has the plexus tangles developed the dementia. Maybe there's something going on there as well, but that's a whole other project um, that will probably take another 10 to 15 years to sort out. So what's going on with the soluble aggregated A-beta? I'm not an expert in A-beta, but apparently you have to have at least three different um, fractions in the cell. It's all going to vary biochemical and cell biology um, orientated and therefore terrifying. But again, there are differences happening. So there are differences. Um, this is in aggregation of total A-beta again, and it's statistically significant between the transgenic mouse and the double transgenic animal. So something is happening with processing third process I mentioned was clearance, and this is just to finish off and say, we're not seeing any differences at all with clearance. So this is a very difficult experiment that was done with David Holtzman over at WashU. And this is um, doing um, sampling from mouse brain, live mouse brain, over time, interstitial fluid in the brain, very difficult to do with cannula. And um, what's happening is that there is APP production, there's APP production, and at a certain time point, David Holtzman's labs add compound E, and that stops APP production. It stops APP produ production, so then what you're looking at is APP clearance. And what you can plainly see um, on both graphs, actually, is that we cannot detect any difference at all in clearance of APP. So that takes us back to, it's not production, it's not clearance, it has to be something to do with APP processing, but it's not the enzymes. 
So, um, oh, and this is just to tidy up a bit more about the clearance enzymes. There's lots of clearance enzymes. One is IDE, one is nephrolysin. We've looked at a bunch of clearance enzymes by Western blotting again. We can't find any differences between the two mousetrains. So, um, to, to tidy up really, it's not production. Something is going on with clearance. With it has to be processing. We know it's processing. We've looked at the enzymes, we can't find any differences, but there is trafficking of APP because where APP is in the cell partly determines its processing. So physically where APP is located in the cell is very, very important for its processing. And this is something that we're going on to look at now. And it, it, I, it is very, very preliminary data, and preliminary data has the habit of getting very exciting and then it just disappears in a way that preliminary data does. But we sort of are starting to think that it might be to do with also trafficking of APP. And that's very exciting because there are candidate genes on chromosome 21 that are involved in trafficking. So um, we have to write this up sooner or later, so let's hope that story works out because if it doesn't, we're really screwed, basically. <laughs> so that's what we're looking at at the moment. We're looking at trafficking of APP in those two mouse systems to see if we can detect the difference. Now, where does that get us with respect to genes? Because, of course, this is all phenomenology. Like, if you see the referees' reports in the paper now, it's all phenomenology but about a gene. How do we get to a gene? We get to a gene through doing biology, which is what we're doing, through doing the cell biology, the biochemistry, trying to find out what pathways are going wrong and then looking at the genes in those pathways. I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm a geneticist, so the way that I get to a gene is by doing incredibly expensive mouse mapping. Remember, we've got those partial trisomies. We can cross those. We are crossing those smaller and smaller regions to our J20 mice to see what's going on. Can we detect that uplift in plaque load in other mice that just have much smaller regions of equivalent to S chromosome 21? And if so, can we look at those genes and try and find candidates? There are other approaches. If we have a screamingly hot candidate, and I must say I'm not a fan of candidate genes because I think really you can make a, a uh, an argument for anything, being a candidate, pretty well. But of course, what we have is we have, through the International Mass Knockout Project, access to enormous numbers of mass knockouts. So we take our mice, um, the double mutant and single mutant, we breed them to knockout animals, and we can drop the copy number of our gene of interest from three to two, and see if we can biologically rescue the phenomenon, and therefore really show that a candidate gene is the right gene. So just to um, finish off for the last few minutes, um, that's work that's going on with us. That's how we're working with mouse models of Down syndrome, of trisomy, partial trisomy, a humanized mouse that has um, human chromosome 21 in it, to, to work with Alzheimer's disease models and try to pinpoint what it is that's going on that gives people with Down syndrome this greatly increased likelihood of Alzheimer's disease. But we're doing it in the context of this group of people, London's Consortium. So this is another fabulous, I love the Wellcome Trust funded um, group, which is uh, several different streams of research coming together to integrate. So we have experts at Birkbeck, Annette Carmelov-Smith, who's a childhood development expert, looking at Down syndrome infants, behaviorally, electrophysiologically. And it, it is a really long-term project, but to try to see, is there anything really early on that you can pick up that you might think predisposes people to dementia later. Um, Andre Striden, who is a psychiatrist of uh, people, uh, old age people, geriatric psychiatrists, but people specifically with learning defects. So he's an expert in learning defects of people with Down syndrome. Again, getting people with Downs from their 40s onwards 
and monitoring people as dementia starts to occur, electrophysiologically, behaviorally. Try to cross-reference with Annette as well in the same test. Everybody who comes in has DNA taken, and that's going to John Hardy, uh, who is, of course, Mr. Alzheimer's in the first place, one of the Mr. Alzheimer's, Dr. Alzheimer's, um, who is doing the genetics. So we're starting to collect these large groups of samples to do genome-wide scans, and it's going to have to be a slightly different type of genome-wide scan, because remember, we're, we're looking at genes that are trisomic, so that would probably involve lots of different computer algorithms. That's being combined with cellular studies, so people come in with Downs, we're developing through Dan Nizatek at QMUL human IPS cells, and beautiful work from both Dan and um, Rick Lissy in Cambridge have shown that you can model amyloid deposition in human IPS cells from people with Down syndrome, and that's going to be a tremendously useful system, but it needs to be integrated with what Victor and I, and in particular Francis Wiseman, are doing to really bring all these um, studies together to understand Alzheimer's disease and Downs. Again, you know, I, I was sort of saying to Chris earlier, if I could start my career again, I think I would do behavioral genetics because I think it is so exciting. So one of the challenges that uh, this group has, has said we will take on, probably very foolishly, is to try to understand when we talk about mouse behavior, we don't talk about mouse behavior, we talk about David's results with mouse behavior. What does that mean in terms of the human context? So along with David, along with um, a collaborator of David's, Mark Good in Cardiff, we're trying to integrate these behavioral tests in mouse with what goes on in humans. It sounds a bit far-fetched, but we are slowly starting to do it. So why, why do this in the first place? Well, obviously, Alzheimer's is of concern to the euclid population, but you all know that um, there's prenatal testing for Downs. Isn't Downs going to be a thing of the past? I mean, well, no, it isn't, actually, because, and therefore Alzheimer's disease isn't. The incidence of Down syndrome is not necessarily diminishing in countries that have prenatal diagnosis. In fact, in some countries, it's flatlining. In other countries, it's actually increasing slightly. And the reason for that is that those countries are the countries that have increasing maternal age. And you might be a mother who's just, or parents, who've just come to the end of some horrendous infertility treatment. This might be the only child you have. And you want to keep your child, whether or not they have Down syndrome. Or... Um, you might be an older mother because you've already had children. This is the youngest child, it's going to be a baby in the family. You know this child's going to be looked after by the siblings and you feel relaxed about having a, a child with Downs because generally speaking, people with Downs are out in the community. You all know or come across people with Down syndrome. Therefore, the prevalence of Downs uh, is not diminishing. The prevalence of Alzheimer's is not diminishing. And uh, we recently published a review um, with this statement, adults with Down syndrome aged over 40 years, um, prevalence doubled in, has doubled in Northern Europe since 1990, and in the UK, a third of the 40,000 people with Down syndrome are thought to be over 40, and that number will go up as people with Downs live for longer. If you talk to older people, um, the view of Down syndrome is that probably everybody is dead, heart defects, infection, blah, 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 by the time they're 30. There are plenty of people with Downs in their 60s, going into their 70s, and even a sprinkling in their 80s. Um, and if you're a parent of somebody with Downs, the big worry is, are they going to get dementia when they're in their 40s and above, which is the time that I'm not around to care for them? So whatever we learn about Alzheimer's is very important for the Downs community, but of course it's very important for the rest of us who uh, may be getting Alzheimer's later on. So for anyone who's interested, uh, Nature Reviews Neuroscience in September, there is a big um, um, review of this. So, to finish, just I want to make two points. Um, Down syndrome is a backwater. 
Nick used to work on Downs, and I think you'll probably agree that we used to go to conferences and they were small, and they were very chatty, and uh, we all saw the same people, we all got drunk together, we all had a hilarious time, and I don't think we ever actually learned very much about Downs at all, but they were great. But the field changed in 2007, and that was with this seminal paper that came out of Stanford, Craig Gardner's lab in Stanford. And working with a mouse model, personally a mouse I don't think is a very good model, but working with a mouse model, he did a series of experiments with a GABA antagonist, and managed to massively um, improve the cognitive deficits in that mouse, however you measure those cognitive deficits. It happened to be in a Morris Waterman's. That changed the field overnight, because suddenly you had parents groups lobbying, saying, well, you know, if you put this into a mouse. The important part about this was that this was a well-known drug that they used um, that was an FDA-approved drug um, for epilepsy. So it's out there. It's already FDA-approved. Um, there, there are actually reasons for not using it in epilepsy, but immediately there was a strong parents lobby, particularly in the US, wanting this sort of drug. And if you're a drug company, my goodness, you're interested. There are 8 million people on the globe with Down syndrome. You, that's quite a large market. So Roche, for example, at the moment, has clinical trials going on based on this GABA antagonist. A number of other um, biotech companies and pharma does as well. <coughs> Working with people in Down syndrome to try to improve the cognitive disorders. Downs is now um, disease du jour also, if you're interested in Alzheimer's, because what's the single biggest genetic risk factor getting Alzheimer's, it's having Down syndrome. So it's a paradigm for a number of uh, uh, different interesting disorders. Back to the mouse, just, I think this is the last or the last but one slide. Um, I do want to blow our own trumpet because partly it was just so damn painful to do. The TC1 transchromosomic mouse with all its problems, and it does have problems, it's mosaic, you can't do single cell recording. Yes, we did wipe out APP and a whole bunch of other genes when we irradiated it so foolishly. But it does remain the only mouse of its sort. It's the only mouse that has germline transmission of more or less a whole human chromosome. It does recapitulate some very, very important features of Down syndrome, not least the heart defect. And um, it does have, unlike transgenic mice, which tend to have long concatenants of um, genes under strange promoters, it really does have the human chromosome 21 genes that are present. The two endogenous mouse copies, the one human copy under their own promoters, etc., etc. And it has turned out to be. Uh, really a remarkably useful model. So there's a whole bunch of um, acknowledgements on there. I would draw your attention to the fabulous David Bannerman and his group who have really been amazing collaborators for us, extremely important people over in experimental psychology. But also to say the last part of this talk is really the work of Francis Wiseman in the group who's, who's pushed the Alzheimer's story forward and without whom there would not be an Alzheimer's story. This group of people here are the Lundowns Consortium and on the day they took the photo, I was out, so I've got your photo shot into them. That's not the stun stage or another. Um, but that's it. Thank you very much for listening.